0: If attorney James Leonard had a theme song, it would be my way. Jim is counsel, advisor, and friend to best-selling author and reality television star Teresa Judice of Real Housewives of New Jersey. Jim also counts rap artist Lil' Kim and many politicians and power brokers as members of his client roster. Jim has taken the road less traveled and blazed his own trail in the practice of law. Six months after finishing law school, Jim Leonard hung out a shingle and opened his own practice, without a single client, or much of an idea what he would do to get them. But what Jim Leonard did have plenty of was moxie, creativity, and vision. In this episode, Jim shares the personal history, character assets, and practices that allowed him to become a sought-after advisor to international celebrities and elected officials. Along the way, Jim founded, created, and developed Boardwalk Journal magazine, which boasted Donald Trump and Mike Tyson amongst those who graced its cover. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing
1: us. You're listening to Iron Advocate. The podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney. Sage. Visionary. Warrior. Unfiltered. No holds barred. Iron advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others... Begins with being the best advocate for yourself.
0: So, Jim Leonard, how did you come to be what I'm going to call a uh, general counsel to uh, Teresa Judice?
2: So, uh, that is a very good and apt description of what my uh, role is with her. Um, very quick background of how I got into that uh, orbit is this. Uh, My wife Rebecca's cousin um, was a character on the Jersey Shore television show, uh, Sammy Sweetheart. That's my wife's cousin. Um, So I represented Sammy uh, when that show started. um, And as a result, uh, there were some folks in my neck of the woods in Atlantic City that knew that I uh, was representing somebody that was on television. I went to a function uh, a number of years later, actually, for the governor, for Governor Christie at the time. Uh, and I was introduced to a woman who uh, said, oh, I have a friend that might need your services. She's going to be on a reality TV show called The Real Housewives of New Jersey. This was not Teresa judice This was her sister-in-law, Melissa Gorga, who is still my client, who joined the show. So I got involved representing Melissa, So I had been involved with the Jersey Housewives Orbit uh, since about 2009. Fast forward to 2014, one of my criminal clients um, that I had represented found himself uh, in the orbit of uh, Teresa's husband, Joe, uh, and set up a meeting for me to meet uh, Joe and Teresa. This was after their uh, criminal problems and after everything that had happened in an effort to see what I could do to help them. Um, And the rest is history. I've been there ever since. So that is how I got into the reality TV world, uh, but more specifically how I got into the Judaice world.
0: So Jim, we're going to talk about your really unique history, but when that opportunity comes across your orbit, as you say, what did you draw upon to have the vision to say, hey, you know, maybe I can help these folks and and at the same time develop my own presence and personality in, in the way that you have through that world? So
2: getting to know Teresa at that time, she was about six weeks away from uh, what was ultimately going to be her uh, turning date. Uh, for federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut. It was a very difficult time, very emotional time. Um, and I, she and I bonded uh, very, very quickly because of the very unfortunate circumstance that she was in. Now this was in 2014 going into 15. I had represented and been a part of Little Kim, uh, the rapper uh, who was in federal prison uh, back in 2005, 2006. So I had represented, I'd, I'd had some contact with noteworthy people that were incarcerated. Um, and because I was also already working on, you know, that show, I was familiar with, you know, the contracts and with Bravo. Uh, and I was a criminal lawyer. So I had, I had the skill set for a lot of the needs that she had unbeknownst to me, those needs were going to multiply, uh, and expand significantly very rapidly. Um, but I will tell you that I absolutely just really, really, uh, grew very quickly to like her as a, as a person. And my, my desire really was, I wanted to help her and I thought that I could. Um, and I, I really just jumped headfirst into it and she was very generous to trust me uh, and give me that opportunity. Um, and, and we've been very close ever since.
3: So Jim, I think there's, when I watch her, and, I'm, and I'm, I have not spent um, hours and hours watching this show, but I'm familiar with it and I've, and I've seen her on camera. Is it accurate to say that, that she really embraces her own perfections and her own, you know, to use a Yiddish term, Mishagas? I'm not familiar with that particular term. Um, Michigas means kind of uh, craziness. There's something about her when I watch her that is very life affirming. There's something that, that, that I see when I, when I watch her that um, and I want to know if I'm reading this correctly. There's a kind of uh, um, accepting of herself that I found myself liking her because of it.
2: So anytime that you get involved with reality television, and you speak to network heads or you speak to producers, what they are looking for is authenticity. And what happens is when people get on television, um, they tend to be very image conscious. Teresa embodies authenticity. Uh, What you see is what you get. If she's upset, you'll see her cry. If you see her angry, you'll see her angry. You'll see her flip the table. That is, I mean that is one of her most iconic moments, um, but it's her authenticity um, that makes the viewers enamored and want more because with her, you're really getting to know who she really is. A lot of the other people on reality TV, um, they give you what they want you to know, but it may not be their authentic true self. So I think Jeff, what you're seeing with her is that's the way she is. So when she gets emotional, that's very, very real. And it, it brings you in. It brings you in and um, it, it makes you want to uh, root for her a little bit more because you feel invested that you really know her. And that happened with me getting to know her uh, in on one night, sitting in her living room uh, on a night. I left there saying, I really like this woman. I really want to help this woman. There was a vulnerability with her. Um, and she was extremely authentic. And I was I was drawn in within twenty minutes of meeting her. I, I wanted to be involved with her.
0: So Jim, you know, you use the word vulnerability. We talk about it all the time that that if lawyers embrace their vulnerability, it it, it it's where really their greatness can come from. What I mean, you're a, a guy that that in a good way, I'm gonna use the word trades on his authenticity. I mean, you are a South Jersey guy through and through. Um, you utilize that in the courtroom, outside the courtroom, in in the public arena. What have you learned from her that you apply in the practice, and and what do you think she might be picking up from you? Because there's a there's like a simpatico there.
2: She and I have a very very uh, close relationship. Um, it's it's definitely not the typical attorney client relationship. We've developed a friendship. She has a a very unique friendship with my wife, Rebecca. Um, I have relationships with her children. I mean, I'm very invested in her family and her well-being. Um, I think what I have learned from her is um, perhaps in all candor to be more authentic to myself. Um, She really does not care uh, what people necessarily think. She is what she is. She's true to herself. She knows what she is. She knows what she's not. And she's really not going to change or adapt because somebody wants her to. She will do that when she wants to. So I think from my perspective, um, I, I found it maybe somewhat refreshing and liberating uh, when you can just say, hey, this is what I am. This is who I am. If you like it, great. If you don't, uh, I'm sorry about that, but it is what it is. And I think what she's learned from me, I would hope that what she's learned from me uh, is different ways to approach problem solving, different ways to approach people and situations in a more analytical way. And I will tell you, uh, I know for certain that she has because um, we discuss problems and people and situations now in a much different way than we may have four or five years ago. So I definitely think, I've gotten a lot from her. Um, she's gotten a lot from me, um, but we talk a lot about family and being you know parents and we talk about marriage and just all types of things. And it's just a really uh, it's a great friendship for me to have with someone that happens to be famous and on television. and I can tell you that I have gotten to know uh, the real Teresa Judice. Uh, and she's absolutely an amazing person. And I feel privileged uh, to be a part of her life.
3: So, so hanging out with her, Jim, you've obviously, she's pulled you into a, a lot of uh, national media and paparazzi uh, attention and dealings. Yes. What's been the learning curve for you in dealing with that? Cause that's not a, a legal problem solving set. What's been the learning curve for you and, and what skills and experience have you drawn upon if if one of our listeners found themselves in a in a case that was high profile, you know what could you tell them about that and 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 how to navigate that? So I, I'm
2: going to be raw, and I'll give it to you. I'll give you a, a lesson that I learned very early on. Um, she was, like I said, when I first got involved with her, she was on her way uh, to Danbury, and she spent about 11 months there. Uh, upon her release. Um, we, we, she published a book and we were doing media for the book. Uh, we started that morning at good morning America. And we, we hit every, uh, you know, big media outlet in Manhattan. So the night before, um, we had either from Bravo, the TV network, or, uh, from the publisher, Simon and Schuster, um, they reserved a number of rooms, hotel rooms, um, And because I was, in essence, the point person, you know, all of the rooms uh, were under my name. They put them in my name because I was going to be the first person checking in. It was for myself. I had my own room. Teresa had her own room. And there was, you know, hair and makeup and the glam squad. So I think we probably had a block of three rooms. So we wake up the next morning. um, We all meet downstairs. We have a car to take us from the hotel to Good Morning America. And there we are in the, uh, walking from the hotel to the car. Here's the paparazzi pictures, TMZ video, the whole nine yards. So no sooner, uh, am I in, you know, GMA, my wife and others are sending me photos. You know, this is great. Look how cool this is. They got your picture, blah, blah, blah. So a couple hours later, uh, one of the bloggers Realized what hotel we were staying at. Um, it's 6 30 in the morning, and they had done their homework that only rooms were registered to James Leonard. There was no rooms registered to Teresa Judice. So they assumed that James Leonard and Teresa Judice were sharing a room together and that they had uncovered this nefarious affair right? And obviously, that wasn't the case. Uh, But my wife said to me, she said, you know, this is a different world. um, And that some of these people are always looking for the scoop. So next time, either make sure she has a room in her name, or you stay in a hotel down the street. And And I learned from that. In that world, people may try to distort the true nature of your relationship. So moving forward, I, I, I would call that a rookie mistake. I never, I never repeated that mistake.
0: So, but Jim, you know, you, you raise a fascinating point. We're going to talk about the fact that you, you know, graduated law school and essentially just, just went out and started practicing on your own. Um, where, when you, when you represent people that are as famous as Teresa is, and you've been involved in, in with politicians and, and, you know, mob figures um, your life starts to morph into their life. That just happens. And that's what you just described. So what do you draw upon over the, you know, the last five to six years that you've been, you know, as I call it a general counsel to Teresa Judice to emotionally manage and uh, try to maintain some, some semblance of balance in your life.
2: So, You know, her life is very um, intense and it's a 24-7 life for her. You know, she will go to the supermarket and people will take her picture. Um, She will, you know, go out and meet friends. um, And if one of them is a a guy and she greets them with a kiss on the cheek, uh, somebody will take a picture and say this is her new boyfriend when, when it's not. Um, so what I've learned in, with her life is she has to always be aware of that. And I would say, uh, that it's heightened my awareness, um, in this respect, you know, I appear on that show, uh, infrequently. I'm not on the show all the time, but I'm, I'm there, you know, here and there. And every summer, my family uh we go to Maine every summer and you know that's where you you don't really do your hair and shave and you you kind of rough it for a week and do what you need to do. And we're in the middle of nowhere when we go there in Maine. It's not like it's a very heavily populated area. Um but a few summers ago I walked into a bank, a TV bank in Maine, um, with a, with sunglasses, a baseball hat, not shaven. And I actually had to do some business for Teresa. It was a, a wire that I had to do for her, and I went in and told them I needed to do a domestic wire, and they put me in a, a room with the the manager, and I went to give her my ID, and she said, "I don't need your ID. I know who you are." and I said, "That's impossible. You know I'm from." and she said, "You're from New Jersey." and I said, "Oh, okay so people would recognize me. And by the way, I, I want to be very clear about this. My role, my visibility is not significant, but it also then said to me, now you need to be aware because you've you put yourself or you've found yourself with that spotlight. So you need to act accordingly. So I am now more aware that if I go to a supermarket or if I go somewhere, someone might recognize me without coming up and speaking to me but if I'm acting uh, ways that I shouldn't act, or I am belligerent, or if I do something, people may know who I am, even if it's not where I live or where I work. So it, it's created an awareness for me, which I think is good, particularly in the world that we live in uh, currently, where I think we all need to be more uh, self-aware of all, you know what we're doing and where we're doing it, et cetera. So. I would say that one of the things that I got from her is she's on 24 seven. She knows what's going on. She's alert. She'll call me and say, there's this car that's been following me for the last couple of days. Um, this is what it looks like. Can you call some of the paparazzi people and see if it's one of their people, you know, cause there's only a couple real major outlets um, and we've been successful sometimes. Like, uh, she, I remember she was down in Virginia with her daughter, uh, at a soccer tournament. And she's like, I'm getting fouled I, I know I'm being followed. Um, this is what the car looks like. You know, can you make some calls? And I got somebody, uh, and they were like, yeah, it's one of our guys. I was like, she's at a soccer tournament for her daughter. You want to get a picture of her sitting on the sidelines or can you just like leave her be? And they, they backed off and she called me later. She's like, I haven't seen the car for the rest of the trip. So. But she's like a – I would describe her as being like if you watch The Sopranos and Tony's like riding shotgun and he's watching in his rearview mirror and he's telling the driver, you know, three cars back, that's Teresa. She could be anywhere, and she has like this spidey sense where she'll say this person, that person. She knows the looks when she goes into a restaurant. Um, that person knows who I am. That person's fumbling with their phone you know, that person's going to take pictures and try to sell them. Um, She's very, very aware of that in a very, very good way. It's almost become instinctive for her. So I think I've kind of developed a little bit of that as well, where I'm very aware of where I am and what I'm doing. Um, So I think that's a good thing.
3: So Jim, question how you even came into their orbit. You were practicing criminal, you were practicing criminal defense lawyer in, in, in Atlantic City and you're becoming known for, as I understand it, your, your mob cases and some other stuff. You pivot to helping negotiate the contract of one of the participants on the show. Is that what I understand happened? So at first, my, the first contracts that I did were on the Jersey
2: Shore TV show during the first run of that show when it was the biggest show on the planet. And I did. I pivoted at that point. Um, I mean... Listen, if you can negotiate murder cases and you can negotiate federal criminal cases with, you know, significant outcomes, negotiating dollars and cents is actually easy to be honest with you. It's a to you know, it's you're you're negotiating money as opposed to negotiating probation or 5 years in prison or whatever. So it was that negotiating skill set I just moved but we were we were now negotiating for money, and then when I I transitioned from the Jersey Shore to another cast member on Real Housewives of New Jersey, Melissa Borga, Teresa's sister-in-law, um, it just it just kept evolving, and I got more comfortable with it, uh, more familiar with it. I learned, you know, the parameters of how that worked, and then that just became, you know, a skill set when you have uh, a lawyer that says. Well, you know, look at look at Bob for example. You know, Bob's a criminal defense attorney and then he's a civil rights attorney. Um and he's just as comfortable doing civil rights so and the guys that do PI and they do criminal but they do a little PI, entertainment, negotiating those contracts kind of became my um, you know, sub skill set if you will. Um and now it's a pretty big part of my practice. Um, because then that morphs into all types of other things in handling the needs of those TV clients media, other projects, you know all of that um, and so that's kind of where it came from
3: The mindset that allows you to go from one specialty to another that requires a kind of flexibility and and a confidence and um, a willingness to be vulnerable and to know that you don't know that world. While you may know how to negotiate, you don't know that world. What advice would you give somebody who is just like yourself, offered the chance to negotiate a TV contract when they haven't done anything ever in that world? They know how to negotiate. They have moxie. They have the kind of presence you have. What would you tell somebody like that who came to you and said, I'm afraid, I don't know how to, this is a world I'm not part of. If it if it's
2: something that at first glance you don't think you can do. For example, uh, if somebody walks in here today and it looks like they've got a multi-million dollar med mal case because the injuries are catastrophic and it looks like this is the ultimate slam dunk, but I don't think myself that I have the skill set to do the complexities of that med mal case, my first response would be, if you don't think you can handle it, if you if you think it's outside of your skill set, find somebody competent that can number one, um, and still try to help that client or be a part of that client's you know journey uh, if you can. But if it's something where you say, you know what, I think I can do this. I think I can successfully help this person and really help this person. Um, I would say try and absorb. As much of the information as you can, speak to colleagues, pick up the phone, and call an attorney that you know or that you may not know that's handling it. Ask for advice, but make sure if you're going to take that client and you're going to take that responsibility, that at the end of the day, when it's showtime, that you know what you're doing, that you don't try to wing it, that you know exactly what you're doing and that you can give that client 1000% because that's what they're there for. Um, so, that would be my advice in that regard.
3: So, what did you actually do as a lawyer to prepare for your first TV contract negotiation?
2: So, I had the benefit um, of I had been working with Little Kim. Um, and while I wasn't doing contract negotiations for Little Kim, um, I was doing some other services for her. I had access to her lawyers that did her business managers. I had access to this world. I had access to her publicists. I had I had access to this world, um, and I tapped into those resources. And I asked questions. Uh, I did research. Um, I reviewed things. I I, I, I felt. I felt very comfortable when I stepped into those shoes for the first time that I was prepared, that I was as prepared as you could be. I mean, if you are a criminal lawyer, uh, there's always going to be your first case. You know, you don't have a plethora of experience, but if you've watched and you've studied and you've maybe been an intern, you know, there comes a time when you're going to have to take that plunge for the first time. And so... I was very fortunate that I had the little Kim world uh, to tap into those resources and learn and ask people to spend time with me on the phone or send me documents or send me previous things and answer my questions so that when the training wheels came off for me to do that for the very first time, I felt that I was ready and and that I could do a good job. And I did.
0: So, Jim, I want to push you on your humility a little bit. And I want you to talk to lawyers out there who may be um, deeply craving creative change, a a, a new road. They might be right out of law school, or maybe they've been practicing 20 years. You left law school, didn't really go to work for anybody, hung out a shingle with no clients, and I'm just going to say no idea what the practice of law really looks like. Okay, because <laughs> none of us do. right? And, and he, here you are today. Here we are having this back and forth about, you know, all these famous people you're representing. Talk to lawyers and non-lawyers, people that are in a place where they're gosh darn scared of chasing something that feels so right for them to chase. So often we don't. Take us back and and walk me through what the frick you draw upon every time you're afraid somebody's going to say, he's an imposter. Jim Leonard doesn't do this. He doesn't. He does that. Well, he doesn't even do that. Let me so, have All
2: right. So, uh, you know, my trajectory um, into law school um, is a little different than the traditional, you know, you graduate college. And then you decide you want to go be a lawyer and you, you just leave, you graduate one and you start the other. I had a um, relationship with the Atlantic city casino industry that dated back to my senior year in high school. I was a senior in high school and I had a job in the casino um, where I would, you know, get done school and go to the casino and work there at the age of, 17, 18 years old. I, I guess I was 17, turning 18. And I was completely enamored with the, the, the casino. I loved the action, right? It was, it just made me feel alive. It made me feel uh, like, you know, I was chasing something. It was, I was chasing the action. Um, and I adrenaline to, An
0: adrenaline junkie. Go ahead. I
2: was, I was an adrenaline junkie and I went to college locally here in South Jersey didn't do very well there, um, but I was simultaneously still working in the casinos. And
0: What were you doing at the casinos then? Can you-
2: so at that, at that time, and eventually I took on another job years later, but at that time I worked in like slot marketing. It was a very entry level, but it didn't matter to me because I was on the casino floor at the age of 18. Uh, I just, it was action, you know, the cocktail waitresses, the everything. I just, I loved it. Uh, it was, it was like sensory overload for me. Uh, but eventually I was still a, you know, a young man living at home. Uh, and my parents were not loving it. You know, they weren't loving the fact that I was going down that path. So I ended up going to college. Um, I went to college in, in Dover, Delaware, Wesley college. Um, where ironically, when I went to college, they had the Dover Downs racetrack. Well, while I was there, um, Dover Downs became a casino. So I had previously worked at Caesars in Atlantic City and Caesars took over the Dover Downs. So now I'm in college and I'm back in the casino. I'm working in the casino. I'm working at the Dover Downs because the people that I worked for before are now running it. So I'm all in the casinos and I'm now doing it in Delaware. It was I'd come home for the summers, I'd take on a new casino job. Long story short, I graduate college um and I come back to the casino. Now I've got a different job. Now I'm in a suit and tie, um I'm wearing, you know, I'm, I'm I'm living this life that I really was enamored by. The action had intensified. Uh it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, I'm 23 years old there was a lot going on. And
3: hey, I Jim, thought, can I interrupt you real quick, yes. real quick. And so the action you're speaking about, because I'm, I'm thinking about this as, as lawyers and the, the commonalities, the thing you talk about, the, the cocktail waitress is the action. When you say action, are you talking about the human interaction and about people influencing yes. each other or just to clarify that?
2: People, just people building relationships, meeting different people, you know, the diversity of what the, the situation of the hour may be. It was never the Monday and Tuesday were never the same. It was always something different, always something exciting. And eventually when I graduated from college and I took the job, now I was a, what we would call a casino service host, where I actually specifically dealt with high rollers. It was problem solving. It was solving their problems. Um, they needed credit from the casino, but they weren't getting it. And they were irate. They needed hotel rooms. They needed limousines. They needed all types of things. Certain times they needed things that they weren't supposed to have and they, they demanded it. And you had to figure out ways to solve their problems. Um, and so I, I kind of stepped into that where it was like, listen, um, I got used to dealing with problem solving. Um, and relationships. You got to know people that could help me get certain things and help me do certain things to keep the quote unquote client happy. And it eventually prepared me for when I had needy clients down the road of, you know, trying to solve their problems and then trying to calibrate their expectations that what they're asking for is unreasonable. That's never going to happen. And you shouldn't be asking for this and here's why. And I really kind of developed I really liked that world. Um, and then something happened. There was like a very pivotal moment for me. And it was like one of those like moments I'll never forget. Uh, I got a call from the front desk at the casino. Um, and it was a young woman and she, you know, she knew me by first name. And she said that somebody had, one of the players had dropped off a package at the front desk for me. And, you know, she only knew me by my first name, James. She said, somebody dropped off a package for James and all right. I said, I'll come up and get it. And this is a true story. I go up to the front desk and you know, the client, the customers, they would bring you cookies and cigars and neckties and whatever they thought you were into to, you know, thank you for what you were doing for them. So I went up there uh, and it was a shopping bag and in it was two shoe boxes. So I said, Oh, I'll walk this back to my office. Maybe somebody decided I needed a new pair of sneakers or maybe nice dress shoes. And I went to my desk and I opened these shoe boxes and they were full of cash. I'm talking I, tens of thousands of dollars, a lot of money. And I knew that was not for me. I didn't have any, I didn't have any clients or customers there uh, that were that generous or that liked me that much. <laughs> so I immediately called the front desk. And I asked to speak to the young lady and I said, can you describe to me the person who dropped this off? And she says, well, I can actually give you his name. She gave me the name and I looked him up in our system. And I realized that that was, that was designed for another James that worked in our company. Uh, and I called him up at home. I said, you might want to come in. Oh, it's like, you know, one o'clock in the morning as well. You might want to come in. There's something here for you, and I'm not just going to leave it here. Uh, and he knew what it was, and he came right in, and he was in his bathrobe. True story. He took it and he left. And I had heard a couple weeks later that there were some problems, and there was people that I worked with, him being one of them, that were prosecuted federally for money laundering and all types of illegal activity. And I said to myself. I do like the action here, but you know what? I got to get out of here. This is no, uh, this is no good. This isn't what I'm looking to do. I don't want to be around that. I, I got to get out of here. And I, I began looking, I, I went to a bookstore and I bought, I bought a book on how to study for the LSAT. And I decided I wanted to go to law school. I just completely made that pivot because I realized that maybe I, I was too close to the action and I, it, I, it didn't appeal to me anymore. It, I, it actually turned me off and I wanted to go in the complete opposite direction. And I did. So,
0: Jim, I mean, you have just described like a Petri dish for, for lawyers, like any lawyer who, who does any kind of, you know, litigation practice, a- any kind of problem solving practice constantly finds themselves with these crises that involve people, their personalities, their emotions and how they behave under pressure. That's the practice of law. The real practice. So I would agree with that. So when you get to law school, and now all of a sudden you're like in first year contracts class, you know, and and somebody's lecturing, and you're sitting there like, I I was just you know figuring out some whales, you know, problem at at four in the morning. Like that's what I want to get to. How did you put that together? What what happened to you during law school to package that?
2: And I'm going to tell you a story, and it's it's kind of embarrassing. I wish I had an I wish I had a photograph of this. I don't think this photograph exists, but at the time that, you know, that I'm working in the casino industry, um, I'm wearing, you know, suit and tie, highly polished, you know, leather, Italian leather shoes. I got, you know, my hair slicked back. I'm, 10 12 months out of the year you know and you know and i'm guessing i'm guessing
0: these i'm guessing these suits weren't the um a button down large firm uh you know it, a classic cut was,
2: it was it was flash it was flash <laughs> so now i leave the casino industry and i'm going to law school i'm going to Villanova um, i get a great apartment uh, in Bryn Mawr right down the street from the, the campus And there is an orientation for, you know, one else. And it was in like, I don't even know if you would call this a cafeteria, but it was in like a general all purpose room. Uh, And it was like, you know, um, I think it said like suit and tie. or It it somehow described that they wanted you to come dressed. I don't remember the exact. So I said, you know what? Hey, what do they say? You you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So (laughs) look, Uh I got, yeah, I got my, I got my, I got my wardrobe here. So let's, let's go. So I had one suit at that time that was custom made for me. It was a three piece suit with the matching uh, tie, hanky. I mean, it was, if, (laughs) if Robert De Niro in casino had seen this, they would have wanted him to wear that. You remember he was wearing like the, the yellow suits and he looked oh, like yeah. all that. Yeah.
3: So, but great. This,
2: this was my Saturday night special. If I, needed to, <laughs> if I needed to wow somebody in the casino, this suit, this did it. it is, this was a, where'd you get that suit? Right. So I figured I can't go wrong with this. I'm, this is what I'm going to wear. So, and now granted, I know not a single human being that's going to Villanova law school, I'm walking into a room. So I get there and I walk in and everybody, the men that are there, if they're wearing shirts and ties are wearing the khaki, khaki pants, the white shirt, the red tie with like the braided belt. I mean, I'm dating myself. This is like 98, 99. So, and maybe the guy wearing an ill fitting suit, you know, blue with a white shirt and a blue tie. And here I am. And I, I literally said to myself, you look like a jerk off, right? You're, you are, you are not in the casino. You're not in Caesars anymore, right? It's not, it's not two in the morning in the craps pit where this is what, what you're supposed to look like. You're in, you're at Villanova University School of Law, which is very prestigious. You're around law professors, you're around your fellow 1Ls, and if you're making a first impression, it was, who is this guy? What is he doing? And so uh, I, I deliberately try. I got out of there relatively quickly that <laughs> night, if I remember. Um, but I, I tried to eventually tone it down. But back to Bob's point, yes, I would be in my classes and my life experience experiences at that point were maybe different than my classmates. And my view of things was different from my classmates because of what those experiences were. And I don't think that made me a better student. Quite honestly, I I wish maybe I didn't have those experiences at that time and that I could have just been a traditional thinking law student. They eventually uh, would serve me well in practice. But I, I think that it may have given me like a little bit of a edge or a chip that probably didn't serve me well in school. It certainly did post school. Um, but yes, uh, it, it certainly equipped me for, you know, when the problems as a law, you know, now you graduate and you're practicing, you know, I, I'd been handling problems and in unique individuals for a long time. So I, I felt like I was ready for it and I was suited for it.
0: First of all, that, that that's my cousin Vinny when he shows up in the oh, uh tuxedo that, in another that's universe.
2: It. No, no, listen. That's, that's it right there. So picture <laughs> picture Joe Pesci, my cousin Vinny, and Robert De Niro, and somewhere in the middle, that's who showed up to the one out orientation at Villanova. Um, that was me. That was me. Uh, so, <laughs> so
0: Jim, it, it it all I mean it is all morphed. To, together for you, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the legal education, the, the real life um, education, was there a moment in time you can identify that you said to yourself, so you left law school and essentially went out to figure this out on your own. Is yes. there a moment in time when you can identify, well, shit, if I put this and my, my, my fiber with this that, that they've taught me at Villanova School of Law, I can be this that we're talking to today.
2: Um, I don't know if there was a conscious thought of uh, having those two worlds intersect. I think that subconsciously they just did, uh, probably by accident. Um, but I think that for me, uh, if there was a moment, and there was, uh, because when I when I graduated uh, law school, uh, and I did work very briefly with a Camden County, New Jersey. Solo practitioner on, we had two death penalty cases in the state of New Jersey. So I graduated and I was with him for just a few months, but we were working on two capital cases. So it was like extremely high stakes, high stress, and I really loved being a part of that. But I was living at the time um, in Center City, Philadelphia with my uh, soon to be wife. I don't even know if we were engaged at that point. Um, She worked at the DA's office in Philadelphia. And what had happened was um, I started working primarily in the Camden area, Camden County area, doing my own thing. I opened a small office in Camden County. I was completely detached from Atlantic city and the casinos and all at that time. And somehow this is where I would say the two worlds kind of met each other. Um, You know, the guy that was the, Camden County criminal lawyer um, was the guy from Villanova picking up what I had learned from the DA's office, doing an internship, seeing other lawyers and kind of all that. But one day I got a phone call from two girls that I worked with in the casinos that heard that, you know, I just disappeared out of the casinos. Not everybody knew what happened to me. And I got a phone call from two different girls that were together Um, that said, are you really a lawyer right now? And I said, yes. And they said, what kind of law, you know, what are you doing? And I said, criminal defense. And they both, both of them had boyfriends that were, that had pending drug cases in Atlantic City. And I rushed down to Atlantic City, met them, got involved in two drug cases. But now I kind of reassumed that, identity and that personality. And that I would say would be like that big bang moment because now I had a practice in Camden, but everything that I had previously done in Atlantic city came back to life. And now I was, I had two counties that I was busy in and I was moving back and forth. Um, and then I just kept going and then it just kept going.
3: And this is about, you know, your own moxie, your own vision and what, what, what I consider to be a kind of entrepreneurial um, energy you have around you. Did you start a magazine at some point in Atlantic City?
2: I did. Uh, So I I start my own practice in, let's say, 2002. Um, And it's, you know, it's rough goings in the first year or two. Um, And then it starts to pick up a little bit. Uh, 2004. Uh, it's, it's going pretty good. It's, you know, uh, as, as Bob said earlier, uh, if I had doubts that, you know, people are going to say, what's Jim Leonard doing? He shouldn't be doing this. I, I started, I would say by 2004, 2005, you know, I was trying some cases and I was winning some cases primarily in Camden at that time, but I really started to evolve. Um, and eventually I opened an office back in Atlantic city, the Atlantic city practice had started to develop. So now I'm back in Atlantic city. I've got an office in Atlantic city. I've got an office in the Camden area. Um, and what happened was, um, on a particular, on one day, um, this was, this would be in 2007. Um, I was involved in two national now this is five years after I come out of you know, I graduate, start my own practice. We're five years in. And on one day, I'm involved in two national cases. The first case, I was, I got myself involved in the Atlantic City political world. And I was representing the president of city council, who was getting ready to be appointed the mayor, because Atlantic City's then mayor disappeared. He was gone. And it was front page news
0: across the country. It was a national story. Yeah,
2: It was was a national, the missing mayor. (laughs) um, And I, I, and he had some problems at that time. um, But I was involved with the president of city council and he was now going to assume the role and to just take a step back. Well, what do you mean? You're getting involved with politics. Now I'm involved with the city solicitor's office trying to tell them what the succession plan is to appoint my new client. I've never even looked at Title 40. So what I did was start making some phone calls and start using the relationships that I had built. And I became very well-versed in that and successfully convinced them that my client, his name was Speedy Marsh, he will become the new mayor. You have to appoint him within this time frame, And we did that simultaneously, I'm representing an individual uh, that was never charged, but was heavily suspected in the deaths of four women uh, that were prostitutes in the Atlantic City area. Their bodies had been found. That too was a national case. So on one particular day in my office, I had at one o'clock a press conference in my office involving Speedy Marsh and the mayor, that business. And at like 2, 2:30, we had a completely separate press conference regarding this case, the, the criminal case, the murders. And some of them were the same media. They stayed up mostly Philadelphia media. Some of them were national media. And what I'll never forget one of the cameramen that was breaking down his camera. He said to me when it was done, he's like, how old are you? And I said, at that time, 2007, I was 32 on my way to 33. And he said, man, he goes, this right here, this is going to put you on third base. And I said, nah, not down here. It's not. We don't have, if I'd been in Philadelphia or New York or Miami, yes. I said, down here, it's not like that. You know, it's, we don't have a big market down here like that. This is a great thing for me, but it's not going to put me on third base. It might get me on first base. I'm not, I'm not going to get all the way to third. But so what happened was, and I was, unfortunately for myself, I was right about that. I did get a lot of media attention, but it didn't really translate to anything other than increasing my profile in Atlantic City, which was a smaller market. So what came out of that idea was, well, wait a second. I grew up reading the Philadelphia newspapers. I knew who Chuck Peruto was. I knew who um, Bob, you know, Bobby Simone was. I knew who Ed Jacobs and Brian McMonigle. I knew who all these people were. But if you were here in Atlantic City, you didn't know who Joe Levin was. Joe Levin was, you know, a phenomenal lawyer. But we didn't have a Atlantic City magazine at that time. We didn't have. You know, these other outlets and the press of Atlantic City as was a small local newspaper. If Joe Levin did a case that got his name in the paper, the best you were gonna get was uh, represented by Joe Levin, and Joe gave a one-sentence quote, but you didn't get the traction that you got in the bigger cities. So I said, I have an idea. Let's I want to start a magazine. And it was the craziest idea, but we started it. It was called the Boardwalk Journal. I remember telling my wife Rebecca. Again, on vacation, I, I get very creative on vacation. I come up with these crazy ideas (laughs) and I said to her, when we go back, we're going to start, we're going to start a magazine. And she said, what kind of magazine? I said, it's going to be like almost like a Philadelphia magazine, but it's going to be for Atlantic city. She said, what are you talking about? I said, just trust me. We're going to make it work. She said, well, who's going to be on the cover? What are you going to do? So we do the first issue in 2009 our very first cover is our current president, Donald Trump. (laughs) We, we Uh. interview Trump. We interview Trump. Um, It's a picture of Trump, his son, Donald Jr. and Ivanka. That's our cover. It's, and I said, you know, we're going to reach out to him at the time. He wasn't, you know, the president. It's 2009. We reached out. He said, let's do it. We interviewed him. So that was my first cover. And then from there, It went and I did that for five years and it was extremely time consuming, but extremely rewarding. And what I did was I absolutely utilized the magazine to now increase my profile, which I did, but I believe I, I hope I used it to help elevate other people, um, that were involved with politics or business to give them that kind of shine that they weren't getting in this area. Um, And a lot of those people have now gone on and done great things. And one of them is someone that I have a great relationship now, Marty small. He's the current mayor uh, of Atlantic city. He was somebody that we put on the cover back when he was, you know, just a councilman. Um, So I really, really like that, but you know, uh, again, you look for those moments in time. Um, I think it was, was it time magazine or newsweek? One of them, one of the iconic magazines I went to the newsstand one day and it was like, this is our last print issue ever. And I'm like, if they're going out of, if, if they can't keep doing this, how am I going to keep doing this? And it was kind of at that moment at when print advertising started to go by way of digital So we did 60 monthly issues, which was a lot. That was five years worth. We never skipped a month. Um, Donald Trump was on the cover. We had Mike Tyson on the cover. Um, We had um, Chris Christie was on a cover. We had some really, really big covers. uh, And then we just eventually had to move on. It became too much of a burden. So we stopped doing that in 2014. But ironically... Four months after I stopped that, that's when I got involved with Teresa Judice. So I completely went from one to the next.
0: So Jim, I, I, what I what I love, we, we could I could sit here and talk to you all day. What I love about what you did with the magazine is. You, you, you serve people by putting out a good product, but you used it to build more relationships, right? That, that was really what, what I hear you saying you used the magazine for was to build the profile of Atlantic City, yourself, your network um, of people. Do I have, I have that right? Uh,
2: you, you absolutely do. And I, I will tell you this, um, there's a, a gentleman uh, by the name of George Norcross, okay, Uh, for your listeners that might not know or might not be from our area, George Norcross is a very successful um, business person, but a very powerful and prominent uh, political figure. Although he doesn't hold elected office, the name George Norcross in the state of New Jersey is, it's, it's big, it's gigantic. And I think there is a lot of people that, oh, uh, you know, I want to be a judge, but, you know, the, the Norcross in South Jersey, how do you even get on his radar? He doesn't even know who I am. I'm just a lawyer from Cape May or whatever. So I've got this magazine and it's something now that I have and we're doing good work. And one of the covers that I did uh, was Steve Sweeney, who is the president of the New Jersey State Senate and he still is today. And I reached out to him and I said, I want to do this cover. Can I come meet you? So I went to go meet him. And I said, listen, this is to the Senate president, Steve Sweeney. Great guy, great, great guy. Um, And I'm really proud of that issue that we did. And I said, I need to speak to a few people for purposes of this story. I need you to hook me up with this one, this one, and I need to speak to Mr. Norcross. And he's like, oh, well, I'll try to do the first two. I said, You got to get me with, I got to get with Mr. Norcross. He's very important to your story the way I'm going to write it. And a month later, I'm in a diner in Hamilton one-on-one with a guy that people will probably do one of two things with, spend their entire career trying to get next to or try to run away from because he's chasing after them. But I found myself at the table with him and it was a privilege to do that because I learned a lot from him. Because at that time, George Norcross, this successful business person, was buying and had bought into the Philadelphia Inquirer, Daily News, and Philly.com. He became a partner in that at that time. And we spent this breakfast talking about my transition into media, what he was doing, and how we could potentially work together. And we eventually worked together where I had a, I don't want to call it a column, but I had, I had placement on philly.com. I gave them placement in the Atlantic city magazine that we had. We were on the verge of putting all of it in every casino hotel room in Atlantic city. And now I'm down here and I've got a relationship with arguably other than the governor, whoever that was at the time, which would have been Christie. I got a relationship with the biggest guy in the state. He's a guy that I can communicate with. So relationship building for me is been the key to my success. Um, whatever success I, success I have it's based on relationships and constantly moving them along. So Jim w-
0: w- let me a- a- ask you to, to do this for us in, in, in kind of wrap up what are you doing today personally? um, practices, habits, if anything, to try to really unpack and analyze how you've done all this, what your special sauce is and, and how to utilize it in a deliberate manner for yourself moving forward. The, the,
2: the best, the best way I can describe that is I have probably spent a large part of the last 20 years of my life saying, I wish I had more time to do this. I wish I had more time to do this. And unfortunately, with the demands, as you all know, of running a practice or being a practicing attorney, um, you just don't have the time to do a lot of things. So a blessing in one respect, a huge curse in another, when, when COVID happens, I looked at that immediately and said, this is my opportunity. This is my opportunity to kind of rewire everything and reprogram everything and shift that focus. And the focus pre-COVID was wake up, deal with everybody else's problems, deal with everybody else's puzzles, if you want to call them, try to solve people's puzzles and you know try to get as much time as you can, which wasn't always a whole lot, when you got home with your wife and kids. And I always wanted to reverse that. I always wanted to reverse that. But I was all I always felt that I was, you know, chasing my tail. I just couldn't, couldn't catch up. I couldn't get ahead. And now when this COVID happens, which is I, I don't want to look at it and say that it was a great thing because it's a horrible, horrible thing. But it gave me a moment to pause with all of that and pivot. So what I'm doing now is I'm working on my own puzzle. I I have way more time with my wife and my children. They are my world. They are my absolute universe. I I rise and everything I do is for them. Um, And I'm working now on some personal stuff where, you know, I'll, I'll spend an hour, an hour and a half and I will go for a walk and I won't listen to music. I won't listen to a podcast I will, using your words, Bob, unpack things, things that are happening now, things that happened 20 years ago, and it's bringing me clarity so that when this is all behind us, and God willing, that's soon, um, I want to be a 2.0 version of myself, a better version of myself as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a lawyer, and I want to incorporate Let's say a more self aware version of myself that I will now be able to um, address my clients' issues, but I will be addressing my own and other things that may be on my mind and being a better friend to people that may have issues uh, that I can help with. And just, I think, being more in balance. And I, I think balance is what I was looking for for a number of years. And it eluded me. So, yes, you can make money, and yes, you can represent all these great people, but you didn't have balance. You always felt you were a step away or you were a step behind. And I think what's happened during this pandemic for me is it kind of slowed the race down a little bit to allow me to kind of catch up and hopefully keep that healthy pace moving forward um, and find that balance. As a, you know, as a man, because, uh, if you're, if you don't have it, you're not going to be the best lawyer. So you're not going to service your clients the best. You're not going to be the best father, the best husband, the best, all of that. Um, and you know, you know, and Bob, you and I talked about this last week, but lawyers, uh, much like, let's say an athlete, a prize fighter, you know, prize fighters, they have shelf lives, you know, Mike Tyson, could be the greatest at 18 19 and by 28 years old it that's over lawyers we can do this into our 70s and beyond I mean how old is uh, dick Sprague you know is he still you know probably right. close to a hundred years old right and still one of the probably the most prominent well-respected attorney and he's closer to a hundred than he is 90 I would guess right that's just a, that's a guess but and by the way, I hope I'm not doing this into my 90s. I, I, I pray that I'm not doing this into my 90s, which will be 50 years from now. But um, I think what happens is we know, hey, you know what? I'm not as sharp as I was in 2015. I got to retool. I got I to gotta get back in there and work on my skills and update them. And I want to get better and be better. And I think what I'm doing here is I'm just kind of recalibrating everything. And I, I, I hope and God willing that I'm able to emerge and be a better lawyer and welcome new opportunities. I've had some very unique adventures during the uh, quarantine and it's brought me into some other orbits that we could talk about later as they hopefully materialize that would blow your mind. Uh, but it's just being receptive and what, what's going to happen tomorrow. And to bring it back full circle It's the action is different than it was in the casino. And I'm looking out my window and I'm looking at casinos through my window. They're two blocks away from where I'm sitting right now, but, uh, this is a different action. Um, I like it, but I've got, I leave, I get to go home and then the action stops. Then the action is taking kids to practice, having dinner, talking with my wife, drinking coffee and relaxing. And I'm finding that balance which was always so elusive to me. And I love, I love it as much as I love the action. So it's great. It's like a 50 50 right now. And I I pray that I can keep that balance because I feel like I have it right now.
3: It's an ongoing practice. And and Jim, this has been an incredible conversation we could, we could go all day. I really appreciate you being on with us.
2: I I thank both of you. And I want to say this, I think what you're doing is a tremendous service to lawyers um, to not only listen to other lawyers, but you know to have them talk about it. It's, it's very therapeutic, um, and I've been listening to the podcast. I really enjoyed uh, the Brian McMonigal podcast because I know Brian very well. I have tremendous respect for him, but I think what you're doing is so necessary for lawyers to have a dialogue amongst ourselves, and you're creating. Uh, an extremely valuable database for lawyers to go back and listen to other lawyers. So I commend both of you, particularly during these crazy times. You've done something very creative and I think very necessary. And I applaud you both for it.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness, breathe in, breathe out, and we'll see you next time.